If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to stand with me and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. This is sometimes referred to as the great faith chapter, sometimes referred to as the hall of fame of faith, because this chapter uh, lists a number of people or examples of men and women of faith from the Old Testament, meant to be an encouragement for us. Now I'm going to read about three selected passages from this chapter, starting with verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. And if you skip down to verse 24, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Then if you skip down to verse 32, And what more shall we say? For the time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. And then verse 34, Who quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. And we pray that as we approach your word and and, uh, see what it has to say for us, Lord, that your spirit will take the words that are said and speak to the hearts of every man and woman here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, there are three men from this passage that I want to focus on. Abraham, Moses, and Gideon. Abraham, God had promised that he was going to build a great nation Uh, through his son Isaac, and yet God asks him to sacrifice his son Isaac, of which Abraham was willing to do. And he believed God, or Abraham believed God to the point where he believed that even if he sacrificed Isaac, somehow God would still fulfill his promise, even if he had to raise Isaac from the dead. Again, showing the faith of Abraham. And then we look at Moses. Moses, who had a life of luxury, Uh, living in Pharaoh's court, but he turned his back on that because he believed in God, he had faith in God, and he wanted to identify with the people of God, even if that meant a life of hardship. And then I want to focus on Gideon. Now, Gideon is one of those that the writer says that he doesn't have time to talk about him. He just kind of mentions him in passing. But that last part of verse 34, where it says, "...became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight," that uh, would be true of Gideon. So three, three men of faith that are given to us as examples for us to follow. Now I want to show you a few other passages on these men. First let's take another, let's look at Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. In verse 10. And I'm going to be pointing out a number of uh, Bible passages as we go through here. So if you'd be quick enough to keep up, otherwise listen real good. Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, it says, Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram, and he was still called Abram at this time, 
So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came about when he came to Egypt that he said to Sarai, later called Sarah, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman, and it will come about when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that, you, that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. So here, Abraham, this great man of faith, is telling Sarah to basically lie and say that she's his sister. Now, why did he do that? Well, he did that because he was scared for his life, frankly. He was afraid that, that, that the Egyptians would kill him to get his wife. So he tells Sarah to lie, and of course he consequently lied. And then what happens, of course, is uh, Pharaoh does kind of take Sarah, and then God hits you know, Pharaoh and his whole household with a plague. God didn't like that. But Abraham, this great man of faith, in this particular instance, he was showing more fear rather than faith. Let's look at Moses in Exodus chapter 3, starting with verse 10. Now this is where Moses... Uh, he had already fled uh, Egypt, and he had been living in the land of Midian for about 40 years, and then he sees this uh, burning bush, and then God speaks to him through the burning bush. Verse 10 of uh, chapter 3 in Exodus, therefore, come, this is God speaking to Moses, therefore, come now, I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, certainly I will be with you. All right, so God's asking Moses to go down to Egypt. And what's Moses' reaction? Well, who am I? You know, I mean, I'm just, I'm 80 years old now. I've just been a shepherd for the last 40 years. I mean, who am I to go down there? And God's response is, well, I will be with you. So he doesn't really say, oh, Moses, you're great. You're wonderful. No, he just, he doesn't, he just says, I will be with you. That's all you need to know. What's Moses' reaction? Well, he doesn't want to go. And he starts coming up with excuse after excuse. Well, uh, you know, who shall I say sent me? Well, uh, I am who I am. Tell them I am sent you. Well, what if they don't believe me? Well, God does a couple of miracles for them. Here, do that for them. That ought to convince them. Well, I can't talk good. You know, I get all tongue-tied when I'm before people. You know, that's, that's, not, my, that's not my thing. Uh, so God answers that in chapter 4, verse 10. Of Exodus, it says, Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in times past, nor thou hast, nor since thou hast spoken to thy servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth, or who makes him dumb, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what to say. But he said, Please, Lord, now send the message by whomever thou wilt. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. God was getting a little bit tired of Moses' excuses. Because Moses is giving excuse after excuse. God answers every one of those excuses. And finally, when Moses can't come up with anything else, he says, Lord, look, I know, I know you can do the miracles. I know you made my mouth. I know you're going to be with me. But you know what? You can do those miracles through anybody. You made everybody's mouth. You know, you'll be with anybody you want to send. So, you know, please, just send somebody else. Now, why was Moses so reluctant to go? 
I believe it's because he was just scared to go. I think the idea of him going to these people, the Israelites, and, and he's supposed to be their leader now. They're like at least two million strong. And the last time he tried to lead them 40 years ago, they rejected him. And then he's supposed to go before Pharaoh. Last time he went before Pharaoh, or last time he was in the land of Egypt, you know, Pharaoh was trying to kill him, which is why he fled. And so now God wants him to go back. It makes Moses nervous. He's uncomfortable. He really does not want to do this. And this is a great man of faith. Well, let's look at the last one, Gideon. Turn to Judges, chapter 6, verse 25 of Judges. Now here God is calling Gideon, and what he wants Gideon to do is he, there's this uh, altar to Baal there in the city, and he wants Gideon to go and to tear down this altar and put an altar to him, to God. Uh, to there. And so, verse 25. Now, the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold. Verse 27. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And it came about, because he was too afraid of his father's household and, and the men of the city to do it by day, that he did it by night. So why did he go at night? He went at night because he was just too afraid. He was afraid of the rest of the members of his father's household who would not approve of what he was doing. And he was certainly afraid of the men of the city. So what did he do? He sneaks out at night because he doesn't want anyone to see what he's doing. Now these, all three of these, are great men of faith that are in the hall of fame of faith, examples that work to follow. And yet every one of them went through a period of fear where they were afraid. Now obviously that's a message to us because I believe that every one of us go through periods of fear. I mean, if these great men of faith, if they went through periods of fear, I believe that we go through periods of fear. Now I entitled this a subject that we're afraid to talk about. And that subject is fear. You know, fear is one of those things that we don't like to talk about. When you talk about your fears, uh, it makes you come across as, as weak, uh, like you can't handle it, you know, like you're a little kid. It's okay for little kids to be afraid, but you're a grown person now, right? I mean, you're not supposed to be afraid of things anymore. You're supposed to outgrow that. So we don't like to talk about our fears. And yet, every one of us probably experience fears. We have fears in many areas of life. Many of us have financial fears, wondering how we're going to make ends meet and this kind of a thing. Uh, medical fears. Uh, we worry about our health or maybe the health of others, loved ones. Uh, sometimes we're afraid to confront people. Sometimes you need to talk to someone. You need to tell them something that maybe you know they're not going to want to hear. And many of us are just afraid to confront and to tell them what we need to hear. This is a problem with spouses a lot. Even husband and wife who live together sometimes don't always... Um, communicate the way they should because they're afraid how the other person may react. You know, we just kind of want them to sort of figure it out. You know, drop hints here and there and, you know, they should be able to figure it out, you know, because we're just afraid to just come right out and confront them directly. So I've, I've, I've known parents who were afraid to discipline their kids because they're afraid the kids, you know, wouldn't love them or something. I think this is a big reason why many of us don't witness the way we should. Because, again, we're afraid of what people will think. If you're a student, maybe you might have fears about some tests coming up. Or whatever. I mean, the list can go on and on. But there's a lot of different areas that many of us have fears or anxieties about. 
Now, a little fear in the face of danger can be a good thing. That's, that's normal. I think we're made that way. But a lot of fear, where we're feeling fear on a regular basis, that can be demoralizing, and it can rob us of our joy in the Lord. We all want to experience God's peace in our life, but how can you experience God's peace when you're experiencing fear? God does not want us to experience fear. The Bible says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of discipline. 2 Timothy 1.7. God does not want us to experience fear. So that brings us to our main theme, which is that God wants us to overcome our fears. God wants us to overcome our fears. So let's look at what the Bible says about overcoming our fears. Now, as I go through this, there's about four points I want to hit. As we go through this, I want you to be thinking about something that maybe you have some fears about, something that maybe you're feeling anxious about, something that, uh, that you're worried about. So point number one is that we need to face our fears. We need to face our fears. You know, Moses, he was nervous about going back, and I imagine that through that whole journey, as he was on his way back to Egypt from uh, Midian. And I don't know how long that took, maybe a few days, maybe a few weeks. But I just imagine that whole trip, he was probably a little bit nervous about having to go talk to these people, to how are they going to react, you know? I come up to them and say, you know, well, I'm supposed to be your leader, you know, yeah, right, you know, how are they going to react? When I go to Pharaoh, how's Pharaoh going to go react when I tell him to let our people go? Yeah, right, aren't you the guy we are trying to kill the last time you were here? You know, I think Moses was a little bit nervous on the, the whole way back. But, whether he was nervous or not, he went back. He went back in the face of his fears. You know, a number of years ago, at our store, we owned a little retail store, a little health food store. And a number of years ago, uh, we were robbed once. And uh, our employee was putting the money uh, underneath, you know, the counter... And there was this guy that just went behind the counter and he grabbed the money and he ran out the back. Now, the way our store is uh, situated, we have like a, maybe like a 20-foot corridor that leads to the back door. So this guy, he grabs the money and starts running out the back. Uh, our employee screams. And, and the way our store works is we have, uh, like off the corridor, we have like our, our office in the back. So our employee screams. Judy was in the office. So when she hears the scream, she just steps out to see what's going on, and just as she steps out, this, this guy goes rushing by her. Well, I don't, I don't think we ever got our money back, but anyway, the point is that that really affected Judy. And for the next month or so, she was afraid to be alone, because it kind of affected her that way. But she was determined not to let this fear uh, debilitate her or hold her back in any way. And so she, she purposely went about her daily duties, her daily routine, and didn't let anything change, was not going to allow anything to change, because she, if she did something different, you know, because she was afraid to be alone or something like that, she figured she was letting this fear dictate her life, and she wasn't going to let that happen. And so then after about a month or two, you know, the, the fear just kind of went away. And then she told me about it. She hadn't told me about this earlier. And I go, well, how come you didn't tell me? Well, she was afraid that if she had told me that I would kind of, you know, make more provision, maybe stick around more, are you okay, you know, this kind of thing. And she didn't want anything to change, you know, because if anything changes, if I do anything different, whatever, then we're making provision for this fear, and she didn't want to do that. 
And I think that's a perfect example of somebody facing their fear. Because you can't overcome your fear until you face your fear. Gideon, one of the people we're looking at, you know, he was scared at first. You know, when God asked him to go tear down this altar, you know, he went sneaking around at night. They didn't want anyone to see him. But he went, even though he went at night, he still went. And some people don't even get that far. Some people, when they're afraid, they just come up with excuses and they end up never doing it, you know. You have to confront somebody, well, did you talk to someone? Well, no, I never did. The time wasn't right. You know, the time's never right, of course. And they never get around to doing it because they let fear get the best of them. So Gideon, he was afraid, but he did it. He faced his fears. I remember a number of years ago, I went to uh, a Bible school in England called Cape and Ray Bible School. And I was there for about six months. And what they would do, they would, take, they would divide us students into groups of about six to eight or whatever. And they would farm us out to different churches for about a week to 10-day period on outreach to work with these churches. And we were basically supposed to do whatever the pastor wanted us to do. So me and my group, we were with this one church, and the pastor wanted us to, you know, to do door-to-door evangelism. Well, that, I didn't really consider that my cup of tea. In fact, it was maybe a little nervous kind of going around door-to-door trying to witness. You know? So he sent us out in twos, and I had my partner. My partner's name was Bruce. So as we get to our neighborhood, uh, I just kind of say to Bruce, I say, I'll tell you what, Bruce, why don't you take the lead, and I'll be the prayer warrior. <laughs> so, you know, Bruce is taking the lead, and we're kind of going from house to house. But as, you know, the more houses we went to, the less nervous I was feeling, and the more I found myself kind of anxious to kind of join in and, and, you know, do the talking. So after a while, I said, Bruce, I'll tell you what, why don't you let me take the lead and you pray? So we started doing that. Now, we're supposed to do this for like three days. By the third day... We were behind in the number of houses we were supposed to hit. So I said, Bruce, you know, why don't we just split up? You know, we can hit more houses that way. So I'm out there going by myself. Now, I would have never done that the first day, you know, because this whole thing kind of made me nervous. But as time went on, faced my fears, I got more and more bold. Now, when we got back to talk to the pastor, we found out we'd hit the wrong neighborhood. But, <laughs> you know, I, I was from America. My partner was from Canada. And they have, like, these row houses over there that all look alike. At least to us it did. But... I'm confident we hit the houses that God wanted us to hit. The point is, you can't wait until your fear is gone or you don't feel in your fear before you face it. I think that's what we want. We're afraid to witness. Well, let's read books. That's what I used to do back in high school. I'd read all these books on witnessing because I, I was afraid I wouldn't know what to say. You know? and, and the point is, I was trying to get, to myself, get myself to the point where I wasn't feeling afraid to go out and do that. Well, if you wait to that, you're never going to do it. You've got to face your fears. One thing that helps me a lot is a verse, 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. This is where Paul, he had his thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what that is, but it was some physical ailment, and he had prayed three times that God would uh, take this thorn in his flesh away. Well, God's answer was basically no. God's answer was, uh, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is perfected in weakness. God was saying, you know, it's through your weakness that my grace is, is manifest. When you're weak and you can't do it, that's when, when my grace really shows up. So Paul ends it in verse 10 by saying, for, you know, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And many times when I'm facing something that makes me nervous, that I'm feeling inadequate to the task, not sure if I can do it, you know, I just kind of claim this verse, you know, when I'm weak, Lord, I'm feeling weak right now, but I know your word says that when I'm weak, then I'm strong, because that's when your grace can really shine. 
So, uh, we need to face our fears. And secondly, we need to avoid the Martha syndrome. Turn to Luke chapter 10. This is uh, starting at verse 38, Luke chapter 10. It says, Now they were traveling along, the they being Jesus and his disciples. Because now they were traveling along. He, Jesus, entered a certain village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she, and she had a sister named Mary, who moreover was listening to the Lord's word, seated at his feet. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came out to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only a few things are necessary, really only one, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken from her. Jesus said to Martha, Martha, you are worried about many things. Well, again, that word worry is a type of fear when we worry about things. Well, what was it that Martha was worried about? Well, she was worried about her dinner and getting this, this dinner prepared, right? She had a very special guest. She had Jesus himself, you know, in her home. Can't get any more special than that. And they invited him, and so she was probably trying to prepare a special meal. It was a lot of work, and she was probably worried, are we going to get this done in time? Are they going to be out there, you know, waiting forever? Uh, is this, is my, am I going to burn it, you know, or whatever? Can I really get all this done? And, and she was getting all worried. And that's why she went out to Jesus. And Jesus said, you know what? You're worried about so many things. Uh, only a few things are necessary. I think what Jesus was saying to her is, you know what, Martha, you're, you're getting your priorities all messed up. Uh, you're making things too important that shouldn't be important. And I think what Jesus was saying is, you know, you've got me here giving the words of life, and you're worried about dinner. Martha, just make it a simple dinner. It doesn't have to be anything elaborate. You know, make sandwiches, you know, leftover pizza, that's fine. And then just come out and listen to me. You know, get your priorities straight. And sometimes I think we create worries and stress for ourselves. And I found myself just recently. You know, this, uh, this school year, I'm a school teacher, as, as most of you know, and this school year I'll be teaching at Anaheim High School. I'll be teaching seniors, senior English. That's what they've assigned me. Now, all my previous years were at a junior high, Sycamore Junior High. So they, they're transferring me to a high school. Well, most teachers will use their summer, you know, to prepare for the school year, and, and this is a situation where it's kind of almost like starting over from scratch, because, you know, all the stuff I used in junior high, you know, all the lesson plans and worksheets, all that kind of stuff, it doesn't really apply to what I'm going to be teaching next year. So it's almost like starting over from scratch. So I, what I did is I kind of made a list of everything that I wanted to, you know, to do this summer in preparation, and I find myself, here it is less than a month, you know, when school's going to start, and it's like, I'm not going to get through all this, you know. And I find myself getting anxious. And, this is, and then I was studying for this sermon, and I'm, I'm looking at this, I'm going, you know what, this applies to me. This is exactly what I'm doing. I'm creating stress for myself. I just need to set my priority, decide what's really important, focus on that. If I have time for the other, it's fine. And just keep my eyes on Jesus, because I was getting my eyes off of Jesus and focusing on all the stuff that I want to get done, you know. And... Uh, and I was guilty of the Martha syndrome. So let's not be guilty of the Martha syndrome. Let's not create stress for ourselves. Let's keep that proper perspective uh, on life. 
And then thirdly, we need to replace fear with faith. Hebrews chapter 11. Let's go back to that original chapter. We need to replace fear with faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, it says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. They were not afraid of the king's edict. Why? Well, because they had faith in God, if you look at the context of the passage. And, and they saw that Moses was a beautiful child. Now, that doesn't just mean that they thought, oh, you know, this baby's so cute. Let's not kill him, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, every parent thinks their kids are cute. But what they, what they meant was they saw that there was something special about Moses. You know, especially in Old Testament times, they, you know, if, if somebody was rich, they assumed God must be blessing this person. You know, if a child was unusually beautiful or something like that, they'd look and say, you know what? this must be a special child of God. That's what they believed. They believed that this was a special child of God, and they believed that, you know, when they were hiding Moses, that they were doing what God wanted them to do. And so because they believed they were doing what God wanted them to do, and they had faith in God, they ended up not being afraid of the king's edict. Now, the king's edict was to kill all the, the Hebrew male children. And, uh, and punishable by, you know, maybe they were taking their own lives into their own hands by doing this. But they had a choice of doing what they believed God wanted them to do or following Pharaoh. And because of their faith in God, they followed what God wanted to do, and they weren't afraid of the king's edict, even though that would have been the normal response. And when they put Moses in that basket, I believe, again, it was, it was out of faith in God. I don't believe they were putting him in the basket saying, oh, we, you know, we can't stand to, to watch him die because he was getting too big for them to hide. They thought, let's put him in the basket so he can, you know, die some slow death and we don't have to watch it. I don't think that's what they were thinking. I think when they put him in the basket, they believed they were putting him in God's hands. Saying, God, we can't watch him anymore. It's out of our hands. We're putting him in your hands. You take care of him. Uh, I believe that's what they were doing. That's why, they, that's why they put pitch on the bottom of the basket so it would float, right? They, they weren't intending for him to die. They believed God would take care of him. And they had faith in God. You know, one of the most important lessons that God wants to teach us is to trust him. And that is a difficult and an uncomfortable lesson to learn. I wouldn't have thought of that, learning to trust God when I was younger as a difficult lesson to learn. But as you get older, you realize that's a tough lesson to learn. Uh, even the Apostle Paul had to learn that. You know, on his second missionary journey. Uh, yes, I'm out there, good. On Paul's second missionary journey, uh, what they had intended to do was to, to go back and revisit the cities and the churches that they had founded on their first missionary journey. That was the main uh, impetus uh, you know, the, for their second missionary journey. So Paul and Barnabas, they split up at this time. Barnabas was going to go visit some cities, and Paul was going to go visit other cities. So they started, I'm going to use my little pointer here. Paul started in Antioch. He went and visited some of these cities up here uh, that they had visited on their first missionary journey. And, and this doesn't quite show all of them. It shows Derba and Lystra. There's another Iconium. And then they probably went up to uh, Antioch, which is that little dot right there, city by the same name as this one, but two different cities. And when they had gotten to that point there, they had gone about as far as they could go. Because that, that was as far as they had gone on their first missionary journey. Now, when they got to that point, they had accomplished what they had originally set out to do, 
But at that point, the Spirit clearly spoke to them that you know, God did not want them to go back yet. He wanted them to move on, to keep going. And so Paul said, okay, fine, we'll keep going, God. Where do you want us to go? God said, I'm not going to tell you, just go. So with that you know, directive, like, where were they supposed to go? Well, they, they kind of set out, they started going. They thought, well, okay, let's go down here to the south in this Asian region, these cities down here. Started heading down there, but then the Spirit stopped them, forbade them from going. He said, nope. That's not where I want you to go. Well, where do you want us to go, Lord? I'm not going to tell you. All right, well, I, I just, you know, so I can't go south. Okay, let's head up north. It's hard to go head up north to Bethania, maybe some cities along the Black Sea. Started heading that way. God stops him. Nope, I don't want you to go that way either. Okay, well, let's see. We can't go south, can't go north, we can't go back. So they just started heading west, and primarily because they didn't know where else to go. So they're just heading west, kind of meandering until they get to this Troas, and now they've gone about as far as they can go. You know, they've come up to the Aegean Sea there where they didn't know where else to go at this point. And God still hadn't told them exactly where he wants them to go. Well, I, I imagine that Paul and company were probably getting a little discouraged at this time. Well, that night, Paul had a vision from a man from Macedonia that said, come over and help us. So when they woke up, they determined that, you know, God was calling them to go over to Macedonia, which is over here. So they... they uh, got the next boat they could, and they traveled over to Macedonia and, and started witnessing there, which is indeed where God wanted them to go. Now, the question is this. Uh, back here in Antioch, when God had told them to move on, God knew at that point where he wanted Paul and Silas and company to go. So why didn't he just tell them then where he wanted them to go and save them a lot of trouble, a lot of discomfort of not you know, traveling with this uncertainty? I believe the main reason that God did not tell Paul where he wanted him to go is because he wanted Paul to just trust him. He was teaching Paul a lesson. Paul, just, just do what I said. I've just given you the next step. Just do that and just trust me. Yeah, but that's you know, going to be a little uncomfortable, Lord. Yeah, you're right. But you know, that's how you learn trust. In Proverbs 3, 5, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. And that's like a, uh, that's like, you know, that's like Paul saying, or, or the, Solomon is saying, you can't have one without the other. Either you trust the Lord, or you lean on your own understanding. In fact, someone shared in our Life Builders class last time, you know, in, in figuring out their finances, they said, you know, when we figure it out on paper ourselves, it doesn't seem to work out. But somehow when God figures it out on his paper, it works out. You know, well, that's a good example of not leaning on your own. According to our understanding, this doesn't seem to work, but somehow God makes it work, you know, so you just have to trust him. Do not lean on your own understanding, but rather trust in the Lord. Charles Swindoll said this, two things about faith as it relates to our circumstances. First of all, the odds are always going to be overwhelming. When you determine to trust God, the odds will always be against you. They will never be in your favor, never. Otherwise, there's no need to trust. If you, work, if you can work it out, that's not a test of faith. But if you can't handle it, then you've got the markings of a most exciting moment. Well, that's how he puts it, an exciting moment. Uh, and it is if you're really trusting the Lord. It's kind of like if somebody's going to take you out that night. Well, where are we going? Well, I'm not going to tell you. You just have to trust me. Now, if you really do trust that person, you might be a little bit excited. You know, you don't know what it's going to be. Well, that's how it is with the Lord. You know, you can't figure it out on your own, but if you really are truly trusting God, 
You say, I don't know what God's going to do, but I'm just trusting that he's going to do something. You can almost feel excited, whatever God's going to do. But a true test of faith means that God's putting you in a situation where you can't handle it. It's a little bit beyond your control. You're not sure how things are going to work out, and you, you have no choice but to just trust him. And God knows that's going to make you feel uncomfortable, but he does it anyway because learning to trust him is more important to God than your comfort. You don't always like that, but that's true. Let's take the example of say, well, I'm going to trust God for my next meal. You know, like in the Lord's Prayer, or, you know, give us a day our daily bread, right? Trusting God for my next meal. Now, suppose I go to your house and I look in your refrigerator and it's got all kinds of food in it. I look in your pantry, it's got more food in it. Well, you've probably got enough food for the next few days or maybe the next week. Well, saying you're going to trust God for the next meal doesn't show a whole lot of trust. You don't really need trust in a situation like that if you've got a bunch of food there. Now, if your cupboard is bare and you really don't know where your next meal is going to come from, as is the case of some people, okay, now you're in a situation where you have to trust the Lord. Now, I've got to warn you, trusting God and walking by faith does not, mean, does not always mean that everything is going to work out hunky-dory. You say, I don't know what God's going to do. I'm just going to trust him that he's going to work everything out. And you know what? Maybe things just don't work out the way you like it. Maybe your life works out in a way where you really don't like it. And you go, wait a second, Lord, I was trusting you. Well, you know, what does the Bible say? In Romans 8, 28, it says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Well, okay, we believe God in that, right? We're going to trust him that he's going to work things out for good. Now, the problem is, I think the key to understanding that verse, or the key to not misunderstanding it, is to understand what Paul means when he says good. How do you define good? I think most of it defines good in a way that works out the way we would like. You know, it, the problem goes away, or at least it shrinks down to a manageable size, you know, and, and God works our lives out so that we're happy or comfortable, something like that. I think that's how we're defining good. But that's, uh, if that's how you're defining good, if you're trusting God for that, uh, chances are there's going to be a number of times where you're going to be disappointed. Don't trust God for something he never promised. Good is defined as whatever God deems best for you. It may not always be what you want. The good in your life is your life glorifying God. That's good. And I mean, always, not always be comfortable. We have to trust God that he knows what he's doing. Take a little kid who, say, has to have surgery. You know, and maybe that kid's too small to, to fully understand it. I mean, you can explain to him up to a point, but, you know, all the medical terms and the reasons why, you know, he may not fully understand, you know, the whole situation. But he can accept that he has to go through the surgery even though he may not like it because he trusts his parents. If his parents say he has to, to do this, he has to have the surgery, then, well, I guess I have to have the surgery. He's just trusting his parents on that. And sometimes that's what we have to be. And that's why Jesus said, you know, you have to become like little children. Sometimes we just have to have that childlike faith. We may not understand why God uh, has done what he's done or why he's allowed in our lives what he's allowed, but we just have to trust him that he knows what he's doing. And I would say this, to the degree to which we trust the Lord will determine how much we will be at peace in our circumstance. To the degree that we trust the Lord will determine how much we will be at peace in our circumstance. 
and the vice versa, to the degree that we lack trust in God will determine how much fear and worry and anxiety we feel. So if you're feeling fear, there's probably a lack of faith there. You might say, no, that's not. I have faith in God. No, you're probably lacking a certain amount of faith. No, that's not true. Yeah, it is true. I, I find it in my own life. Sometimes I feel like that the father who came to Jesus who, for his, the sake of his son, and Jesus said, if, you know, all things are possible to him who believes. And the father said, Lord, I believe, I do believe, help my unbelief. It sounds like a contradiction in, in terms, but sometimes that's how I feel. I believe that God is all-powerful. I believe he's omniscient. I believe he can do anything. I believe he's going with me wherever I go. I believe he loves me, and yet I still find myself nervous facing certain situations. And I feel like saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So we need to replace our fear with faith and trust in the Lord. And then fourthly, we need to be anxious for nothing. It says in Philippians 4, 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, anxiety, it says here, be anxious for nothing. Anxiety is a form of fear. And this says we are to be anxious for nothing. It doesn't say, it doesn't say most things that you face in life you shouldn't be anxious for. It says nothing. There is nothing in life that we're to be anxious for. That's probably not true of us, so I have to assume, well, maybe we're not doing what Paul said to do, because I'm feeling anxious sometimes. Well, what did Paul say to do? What are we to do instead of being anxious? Well, we're to pray about it. Prayer and supplication. We're to pray for ourselves, if we're anxious or fearful about something, and we're to pray for others. Uh, and that's probably the bulk of most of our prayers anyway. Prayer and supplication. That's what we're to do about it. Yet, we do that, but somehow we still can't quite claim that we're anxious for nothing. Let's look at that verse again. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Now, I left something out of that verse this time. I don't know if you noticed that. Well, I did that on see if you'd noticed it. Now, some of you who know this verse well probably noticed it. Let me put that verse up again, this time putting it back in. Be anxious for nothing... But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Ah, you know, when I was younger, I didn't catch that. But that's what was different about how I was praying and how Paul told me to pray. When you pray about those things you're anxious about through prayer and supplication, it should be with thanksgiving. What do you do when you give thanks? Well, you're showing gratitude, right? That's the idea of showing thanks. If you do something for someone uh, and say you put in a lot of time and effort and spend money or whatever you're doing for the person and then you, you know, give them or whatever, you're, whatever you're doing for that person and that person never says thank you or whatever, I mean, how do you feel? Well, that's ingrate, you know, they're selfish, only thinking of themselves, you know, not thinking about the time and the money and effort I put in, you know, this kind of thing. They're not showing any gratitude. Well, you'd be right. And when we thank God, when we pray with thanksgiving, we're showing gratitude toward God, we're recognizing His grace, we're recognizing that, that we need Him, and it's keeping a proper perspective. All of our prayers should have thanksgiving in them. I don't know if that's true, but you know, in, in Life Builders, we're studying uh, Colossians, and it's just kind of been striking me as we've been going through it, how many 
times Paul exhorts the Colossian believers there to give thanks, to abound in thanksgiving, in everything give thanks. Or even in this verse, you know, whenever you pray by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, it should always be with thanksgiving. No matter what the situation is, we're thanking the Lord. It's really, it's showing a way of trusting him. Uh, it should be with thanksgiving. All right, let's review. How do we face our fears? How do we overcome our fears? Well, number one, we need to face our fears. Two, we need to avoid the Martha syndrome. Let's not bring stress and fears upon ourselves. Number three, we need to trust the Lord in all circumstances. If I had to pick one I want you to remember, this one would be it. Trust the Lord in all circumstances, that he knows what he's doing, even if he doesn't explain it to you, even if you don't know why he allows something until you go to heaven. We trust the Lord. Number four, pray about it with thanksgiving. And number five, I'm going to add one here, share with another Christian and have them pray for you. Again, we don't like to, you know, share our fears. It makes us appear weak. I think men especially, this is true. We don't like to share our fears. Uh, we don't want to appear weak. Uh, even with our spouse sometimes, you know, our wives we don't share, even though they should know everything about us because, well, our wives are counting on us to be brave, to make up for their fears, so, you know, we can't share with them. We've got to be strong. So we don't share. And yet, as Christians, we need to share with one another uh, so that they can pray for us. And when someone shares with you, if you're on the receiving end, you know, don't sit here and always be trying to solve their problems, you know. Sometimes they just need a listening ear, and someone to pray with them, and next week they might still need you to pray again. You don't want to go, what, you're still dealing with that? No, we've got to be patient with each other. So share with another Christian and have them pray for you. Well, I'll leave you with this verse, Psalm 56, 3 through 4, and this might be a good one for you to memorize. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, and, and to, to trust you, Lord. Help us to have faith in you. Help us to overcome our fears and live our lives the way you want us to, with joy and with peace as we walk in faith in you. Lord, I pray that for every person in this congregation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.